The views expressed in this program are those of the participants and do not necessarily reflect the views of 94.9 CHRW. No, my father didn't fight in the wars. He was a navigator on a spice freighter. That's what your uncle told you. He didn't hold with your father's ideals, thought he should have stayed here and not gotten involved. You fought in the Clone Wars? Yes. I was once a Jedi Knight, the same as your father. I wish I'd known him. He was the best star pilot in the galaxy. And a cunning warrior. I understand you've become quite a good pilot yourself. And he was a good friend. Which reminds me, I have something here for you. Your father wanted you to have this when you were old enough. But your uncle wouldn't allow it. He feared you might follow old Obi-Wan on some damn fool idealistic crusade like your father did. What is it? It's your father's lightsaber. This is the weapon of a Jedi Knight. Not as clumsy or random as a blaster. An elegant weapon for a more civilized age. For over a thousand generations, the Jedi Knights were the guardians of peace and justice in the Old Republic. Before the dark times. Before the Empire. How did my father die? A young Jedi named Darth Vader, who was a pupil of mine until he turned to evil, helped the Empire hunt down and destroy the Jedi Knights. He betrayed and murdered your father. Now the Jedi are all but extinct. Vader was seduced by the dark side of the Force. The Force? And the Force is what gives the Jedi his power. It's an energy field created by all living things. It surrounds us and penetrates us. It binds the galaxy together. Good morning, London. It is Thursday, November 10, 2011. I'm Bob Metz. I'm Robert Vaughn. And this is Just Right on CHRW 94.9 FM. Where we will be with you from now until noon. No, not right wing. Just right. Fade into color, color into black and white. Under the bedclothes, everything will be alright. Well, may the force be with you, Robert. How are you today? I'm doing good, Bob. <laughs> and if, if anyone would like to hear the force of their opinion expressed today, you can call 519-661-3600 on a day in which we feel somewhat compelled to deal with the issue of force. I kind of felt, you know, forced to deal with force today, and that's the theme of our show, although we'll be covering a lot of other issues. We'll be talking about some of the... Uh, uh, conflicted ideas and opposing forces out there, in, you know, partially because of Remembrance Day tomorrow, also mm-hmm. because of the Occupy London protests, some of our subject matter we've been discussing lately, even over the past weeks. It's kind of all led up to this, hasn't it, Robert? Yep. So uh, I, I doubt this will be the first show on this, or the only show on this, rather, because I think it's only going to be the first of a series. We're not going to get to everything. And, of course, there's one other thing I want to start off with, and that's something else I've been a little forced to deal with. And that is, um, basically, I've discovered we have a bit of housekeeping to do, namely to catch up on some of the feedback we've been receiving recently. 
And so, um, you know, Robert has been uh, telling me that uh, I've been a bad boy for not acknowledging all of these in a timely manner, and I know I really suck at that, and he has rightly chastised me for my failing. So we're going to do some catching up, okay? And uh, first letter from Aaron, who writes, Today's show is just great. And he's referring, in this case, to the October 20th show, Just Right 222, which, of course, you can listen to all these shows uh, on our archived website at www.justrightmedia.org. And Aaron writes, Today's show is just great. It really puts some things into perspective for me. It's so often difficult to figure out what exactly needs fixing with so much information coming from all around me. And I think you guys really hit it on the head regarding the girl getting run over. Compassion really does come from happiness and value of one's life. Well, thanks for that, Aaron. That's an interesting comment. Talking about the little girl that was hit by the car in China. Yes, yeah. And subsequently died, I understand, Robert. Too bad. That's a sad story, to say the least. And here we heard from, uh, again, uh, and thank you again, uh, Tony from Niagara Falls, who wrote us a couple of weeks ago. And he wrote, writes again, he says, uh, thank you for reading and rebutting my letter on the air today, which was October 13th at the time. Uh, he says, I thought it was very interesting of you to do so. Hmm, I thought it was very interesting of you to write, Tony. And Tony continues, he says, you know, I don't normally respond to rebuttals, but sometimes you just have to agree to disagree with someone. This time, though, I want to make an exception. Sir, I feel my letter wasn't angry and that my Human Rights Commission comment wasn't mean-spirited. Realistically speaking, it was pretty much par for the course. I'm not the Dr. Hyde of centrism. Rather, it's likely that you are excessively sensitive to the subject of the Canadian Human Rights Commission. That's true. (laughs) (laughs) Well, but there's also another reason, too. Uh, You return to that subject again and again. Anyway, just so that you know, I do consider myself a centrist, and I listen to your show to get different views as a sort of a vision quest. And I intend to challenge you more from now on. Bye for now. Well, that's great, Tony. We, we do like to hear from you. Yeah, we do, actually. And uh, Love criticism. Yeah, but sorry, I think we're going to still have to agree to disagree on this one. Um, you know, when you wrote in your original comment that, quote, you libertarians deserve your horrible fate at the hands of the Human Rights Commission, end quote, you know, it was only natural we re- we return to that subject because Human Rights Commissions, you raise it in your comment. And I don't know if it isn't mean-spirited to wish someone a horrible fate, even if it's just in jest or whatever. I mean, uh, even a libertarian, of which neither Robert or I are one, then what exactly do you, do you call it when someone wishes harm upon an innocent person? Is that what centrist means? I'm not too sure. Well, I'll take him at his word and say basically sure. that it was in jest. Well, I know. But, uh, you know, it's interesting in his comment when I read this sentence, had to read it twice, understood his point. He says, I normally don't respond to rebuttals because sometimes you just have to agree to disagree with someone. This time, though, I want to make an exception. <laughs> now, I thought at first he meant an exception to agree to disagree. Right. Because I was thinking, well, what would the alternative to that, to that be? No, an exception of rebutting a rebuttal. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> but otherwise, you're re- the answer would be forced, the topic of our theme today. And that's why the right to disagree is so fundamental in a free society. Um, Anyway, next person is Jerry, who writes and says, I occasionally listen to your show and enjoy it greatly. I wonder if you could respond to my proposal for green energy. I propose that we make green energy use voluntary. That is, clients who had an interest in using and supporting green energy, like solar, could sign up and pay the 80 cents plus cents per kilowatt hour. The number of solar projects could be based on the number of clients that would sign up. 
I hear statistics that a great number of Ontarians support solar. Do you think that a 1,400-plus percent increase in their hydro bill would demonstrate the foolishness with the present technology of the solar initiative? Thank you for the thought-provoking radio. You two gentlemen provide regards, Jerry. Thanks very much, Jerry. You're more than welcome. Or, you know, if they were willing to pay the increase, it would demonstrate their true support of the concept. But uh, somehow I thought I was hearing a little sarcasm in that penmanship. Were I you? thought basically yeah. he was saying just put your money where your mouth yeah. is. <laughs> yes. And Rob writes... He and said, don't force it on the rest of us. Exactly. Um, and Rob writes, hey, hey, Bob, did you hear Chris Bentley shamelessly taking credit for the reduction of so-called smog days this summer as a result of his aggressive green energy technology already in place? I just about drove into the ditch. <laughs> yes, Rob, thanks. And I did hear it. And I was thinking, boy, talk about clouding or smogging the issue. But, uh, you know, one thing is clear. The Liberals, for, for them, it's green at any price because they know the price is paid by you and me. And that's the whole point there, isn't it? And then last but certainly not least, and this is the one I've dealt with the most because this sort of segues into our next subject and segues out of our last one. And this is from Jeremy who writes, um, I guess, about the last two shows. And um, very interesting comments, and I thought this really, you know, focused me on uh, on really a lot of what we were saying over the last couple of weeks, and I appreciate Jeremy writing. And Jeremy writes, hello, Bob and Robert. I was very interested to hear your recent shows on libertarianism. I generally describe myself as libertarian, and honestly couldn't find much to disagree with in your programs on the issue. Those who are anti-state to the point of anarchy make a lot of bizarre utopian claims. In the real world, the state has a role in protecting individuals from force, and when libertarians oppose the state in doing that, they are working against true freedom and justice. Furthermore, I agree that the foundations of liberty must stem from ethics, not utilitarianism. The fact that capitalism provides the greatest good for the greatest number is secondary to the fact that it is the only system that allows for voluntary, as opposed to violent, relations between human beings. That's what makes it uniquely and naturally just. The only thing that I disagreed with was your conflation of all libertarianism with quote-unquote anarchy. You ignore the fact that there are a great number of people who believe in the ideal of liberty and thus self-identify as libertarians while also supporting the rule of law and the presence of a strictly limited governing body which raises money through voluntary means, such as user fees, insurance on financial transactions, etc. You are right to point out the flaws of anarchy and write that libertarians sometimes need a reminder in this regard, but I fear that by trashing libertarianism as a whole, you might alienate a lot of rational, freedom-loving people who otherwise support your message. And that was Jeremy's message. Well expressed. Very, yes, very much so. And I want to say thank you for being a listener to this show, Jeremy. And basically, you know, for the confirmation of what we've been saying about anarchy and libertarians, libertarianism's <laughs> connection to it. Um, however, I'm, I'm wondering why you would suggest that we've, quote, ignored the fact that there are a great number of people who believe in the ideal of liberty and who support, etc., etc., within that movement, because... You know, I, I really can't believe that you walked away from our last two broadcasts without that point being made with great emphasis. I thought we almost went out of our way to do that. As a Didn't matter of fact, yes, I did go out of my way to distinguish between the ideology of libertarianism 
and individuals who call themselves libertarians, mm -hmm. because you and I, Bob, at one time called ourselves well, sure. libertarians. In fact, I used to say this very same thing that Jeremy said, and maybe that's it's my guilt working on me right now, which is why I'm giving this a little extra attention. So yeah. maybe I'm taking this a little more out on me than on Jeremy. <laughs> <laughs> Just go but, back, Jeremy, uh, to our previous shows and give a listen again, or or even go to my blog at robertvaughn.ca where I, I, I post what I say on the show. And, and have a look. I do mention that there are a lot of good people out there fighting for capitalism who are advocates of capitalism, but I get sucked in to the libertarianism. Hmm. And the leaders of libertarianism are anarchists. And, and we gave examples of that on the show of how the Ontario Libertarian Party, for example... The, the leaders, the founders, were every, all spokesmen of the movement are that. So my question to Jeremy is, why define yourself as belonging to a political ideology, that is the ism, whose leadership opposed your views? You know, it's um, one of the reasons I no longer call myself a conservative, because I discovered that conservatism opposes my views because the leaders oppose my mm. views. I, I would suggest, rather than looking for an ism to call ourselves, us uh, people who love freedom, rather than trying to cling on to an ism, call yourself an advocate for capitalism. Because when we define capitalism as we have on this show, it's not simply an economic system, a political system, but it's a moral system. And it encompasses all that I think that you and I, Jeremy and Bob, agree with so well it's even deeper than that and you know this is um you know first i want to just make a point you know last when we went through these shows i did go through a litany of founding and high profile libertarian activists whom i have personally known and i've understood where they've been coming on and we've aired many of them on this very show and um you know we very much lamented the fact that you know innocent limited government types find themselves derailed by the anarchists we talked about that at, at length last week so you know, I think the distinction that you're thinking was lacking, I think it was there, which suggests exactly as you say in your final paragraph that you yourself are not concerned really with our alienating freedom-loving people, but very much with our trashing libertarianism as a whole. And I think that's a well-intentioned argument. I used to use it myself. And it's one I've heard made ad infinitum over my 30 years plus of activity in all the various factions of the so-called freedom community. Over and over and over again. It's exactly to this argument, though. The folly of the big tent that Robert and I were speaking to in the last two shows we did on, on libertarianism. In fact, Jeremy, I would say that if we were not to trash libertarianism, one could never attract the rational, freedom-loving, you know, not libertarian-loving people that are necessary to the true advancement of freedom. And while you're quite correct to suggest that, quote, the fact that capitalism provides the greatest good for the greatest number is secondary, etc., etc., it is not really secondary just to ethics, since ethics itself is entirely dependent upon its philosophical roots. Freedom is not based on ethics, but upon the metaphysics of reality and the epistemology of reason. When freedom is defended on any other grounds, the battle is lost. And this is one of the reasons I find myself so frequently limited to basically three key freedom-loving advocates in this context, and that's Ayn Rand, Isabel Patterson, and John McMurray, all of whom in their varying ways understand the inescapable connection between reality, reason, and freedom. They don't say ethics. They say, because ethics is also the result of reality and freedom. And all three words appear in the very titles of, of John McMurray's works, if you look at them, like, you know, reality and, you know, freedom, literally right there in the title. 
And there's a third one, but I can't remember what the third one is. Uh, Uh, That's a joke if you haven't heard about (laughs) Governor Perry recently. (laughs) Now, you know, for example, although we've cited comments on this show by so-called libertarian and Republican Ron Paul, with which we have agreed, his economic comments, um, he's actually openly justified freedom on the grounds that it is based literally on God-given rights and and in a literal deity. And this is incorrect. It's inconsistent and contradictory with the necessary and actual foundations of freedom. And of course, there are libertarians, even so-called limited government libertarians, who believe that it doesn't matter why somebody believes or supports in freedom, which is another fallacy that dooms freedom from the start. And I've learned this from bitter, bitter experience. That's exactly right. It does matter. It matters hugely. And for a person committed to reality and reason to associate and join forces, which is what we're going to talk about today, with any group operating on another premise is to be suicidal to one's own cause. And so I can't overemphasize the folly of mixing two utterly opposing philosophies and points of view. Um, Any true freedom-loving people who count themselves as libertarians are already alienated from our message and can't really be alienated any further if you're going to look at it that way. And here's an interesting, you know, Jeremy has told us himself that he acknowledges there's a clear divide between anarchists and limited government types and that anarchists are destructive to freedom. He's told us those two things in his own letter. Now, suppose I were to suggest, quote, not every member of our political club is a murderer. Many members actually are very charitable and do good work, (laughs) end quote. Uh, An extreme example, perhaps in fact, but not in principle. By associating and participating with evil, however you may define it, the good becomes evil and no amount of compromise can alter that fact because the compromise actually creates the fact. (laughs) That is the fact. That's what causes it. And of course, there's another possibility, Jeremy, and I think that's what Robert suggested earlier. From what you have written in your letters opening, perhaps it's time that you, like myself and Robert before you, reconsider the label that you're using to describe yourself. You're right at the door, as you yourself say, When libertarians oppose the state protecting individuals from force, they're working against true freedom and justice. So, you know, again, I say be be cautious with the company you keep and beware in the extreme of joining forces with those who are not your true allies. And speaking of force, that is what will be... That's all I have for today anyway, Robert. (laughs) You're looking at me for more. But uh, speaking of force, that is uh, what we will be talking about after we listen in on the following short story and parable on this very challenging subject, courtesy of Boston Legal from a second season episode that I found to be uh, quite persuasive in very many ways. So we'll be back after that, and we'll pick up on Forced to Deal with Force. Alan, he's selling her house. That's my living room, my son Jonathan's bedroom, my kitchen, my bathroom. My house is a charming three-bedroom with potential. What's going on? Mr. Wharton is even more rancid than I had imagined. He's attempting to sell Adele's home. Apparently, this isn't the first time Mr. Wharton has done this. According to a title search, he has sold 11 houses belonging to his wards. And get this. The house he's living in right now belonged to another one of his wards who happened to pass away in her sleep. This man is pure evil. Alan, you've got to get that creative brain of yours to work and stop him. Yes, I do. Mm. Mm. Yoo-hoo. Anybody home? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. 
Mr. Wharton! Oh, my goodness. This is dreadful. Look at you. You've been assaulted and robbed. Oh, the world we live in. Who on earth would do something such as this? Oh, of course you can't speak. I'll get you a pad and a pencil. That's no good. Your hands are tied. My God, you must have been left here for what? Over an hour? It must feel awful to be left alone and vulnerable. Well, apparently, they made off with nothing more than some dingy old file boxes, which could only contain records, I would imagine. How stupid are they? I mean, what could they possibly hope to get for that? Anyway, I'm glad it's over. Let's just pray it never happens again. And again. And again. Mm. Oh! Also, obviously you're in no shape to handle your court-appointed duties, particularly with regard to Adele. Not to worry, I just happen to have with me that release form from the other day. Now, maybe there's just enough give here to let you sign it. There's that. There you go. Wonderful. You know, now that this experience has brought us closer, I feel I can say this. Sometimes these events are just what one needs to shake things up a bit, make a change, new job, new direction, new ideas, just a thought. I'm thinking now would be a perfect time to start. Yes, well, this is much better already. I feel that foreboding sense of danger fading. Still, best to stay alert on the right path because you never know when this kind of thing might happen again. You only know that it will. So whose ass did you have kicked? Someone whose ass thoroughly deserved it. Good. I can never understand why people don't use violence more often to solve their problems. Works every time. Actually, I'm quite disturbed by it. I had a real appetite for Mr. Wharton's fear and suffering. Is that unusual? For me, not at all. What was unusual was how swiftly I acted on my cravings. It was an emergency. What else could you do? Something more clever. Equally disturbing was how easy it all was. A quick fix, which required very little thought on my part, just a phone call. I wonder what I'm turning into. Denny Crane. Still a long ways away from that. Don't you worry. You'll get there. And welcome back. Um, you know, when persuasion fails, just use force. Normally, I disagree with this assertion and have done so consistently with regard to the issue of freedom of speech. 
Today I find myself a little bit on the other side of the statement in the context of the short story we just heard and in the context of London Mayor Joe Fontana's successful use of force in the eviction of occupiers in Victoria Park early Wednesday morning who are now committing themselves to going back again, Robert. Can you believe it? Yes, because their goal is violence. You know, it's funny... Former London Police Chief Murray Faulkner once lamented, I heard him on the radio, he lamented the fact that people have forgotten that our police are a police force. And this term has all been a bit abolished in favor of words like service and protection and all of these other words. Very libertarian concepts. Almost as if one could have competing agencies of service and protection available to consumers in the service and protection market, right? And that's... I think largely part of the problem that we've been dealing with is that people do not understand that government is about force. Force is what is governed. And you don't just ban all force. That's not, that's not government. That's anarchy, right? Because there are three kinds of force. We've discussed them in, in detail on this show, defensive, retaliatory, and initiatory. And they're all dealt with very differently. And... It's true that historically force has often been used to mis misused rather to rule and not to govern, and that's part of the problem. Now, on Tuesday morning, London Mayor Joe Fontana held a news conference, finally announcing that the Occupy London campers and squatters in Victoria Park would have to move their tents by 6 p.m. And I say finally because I think it was long overdue and could have been avoided from the start. Uh, what has been avoided since the very beginning of this so-called protest, except by you and I, Robert, it seems, is that. It's not a protest, it's an occupation. They keep calling it that themselves. And that is an aggressive use of force. It's an act of violence, whether you like to believe it or not. Even if you check in the dictionary, you will find that it is an act of violence. Because this is not about free speech or protest, neither of which have ever been in question anywhere in the whole confrontation. It's about the occupation itself. And, and consider what an occupation is. It's a claim or an ownership or jurisdiction on whatever is being occupied, to the exclusion of all other claims. You know, this speaks to the fiction of public property that Isabel Patterson wrote so well about. And, you know, what happens when an uninvited army occupies a foreign territory? This is not a protest, or just a message, <laughs> right? Now, if there is a protest involved here at all, it's a protest against the very notion of property, which is also indicative of a very coercive mind. And, you know, I always think if you really want to occupy something to make a point, there's always our jails. And I think two, two people have chosen that option early this morning when they tried to set up their tents again last night and got arrested under the Trespass Act this time, not under the, um, just the, the, the bylaw. The bylaws, yes. And I happen to know of an anarchist or two is sitting in a jail right now doing exactly that. Uh -huh. um, you notice that, uh, you know, even Tim Carey decided not to show up at this one, even at, at the 6 o'clock rally they had, even though other union leaders did. But um, I think even his organized violence movement is disenchanted with the disorganized violence going on here. And uh, eating anarchies, perhaps it is. It's you know, it's hard to lead the leaderless and directionless, and this doesn't offer much to someone who likes to organize things, you know. And uh, you know, and then of course there was the ultimate LOL, laugh out loud, as announced more than once on other radio stations in town, where one of the occupiers finally let us know that the real purpose behind the whole occupation was to abolish money and currency. Hmm. Oh yes, and to redistribute wealth. <laughs> 
and I thought this was just a, a double-plus good LOL, okay, <laughs> in the category of cake-eating and having, too. Ten know? points to Gryffindor. Yes. <laughs> it's an eternal theme resident in the coerce of mine. It's very interesting. You know, it wouldn't surprise me at all to learn that the person who could hold such contradictory ideas in a single statement would totally be at odds with the suggestion that his kind of thinking inevitably leads down the road to anarchy or totalitarianism, two very undesirable conditions under any circumstances, and that, or that he and people who think like him are the problem and not the solution. This whole thing's turning into class warfare, and that's the name of the game, and I think it's being orchestrated. The 99% versus the 1%. Now I hear there's the 53%. You heard of them? They're the income tax payers. I was just thinking, you know, if 53% of people pay income tax, then at least, the very least, 52.999 of them have to be among the 99%, right? You can't have more than 100% of people. Anyways, all of this is imaginary anyway. It's all based on the false economic theory of having a fixed pie of wealth in any economy, which is never the reality, really. Unless, of course, the government is involved somewhere. Because all government services are rationed based on some quantity or formula fixed by government through law. And this is what happens when the very visible hand of government replaces the invisible hand of the market. And when we say a free market, we mean free of government coercion and forced spending, you know, beyond the legitimate functions of government. Government is an instrument of force. And we always say that, you know, G is for government, G is for gun. When a gun is used in the defense of life, liberty, and property then it is the proper application of force. And again, to stress the point, force is what is governed when we speak of government. To be opposed to government as such is to be opposed to any restrictions on the use of force, whether just or unjust. And, uh, you know, the fact that governments themselves may routinely abuse force in their provision of their social justice and economic equality programs is the very thing that confuses the situation. Because when governments do this themselves... They effectively cease to govern in the meaning of the in the meaning of the true word, you know, or the true meaning of the word. And by the way, when we say govern, we mean a condition under which the initiation of force is prohibited as such. And when we say rule, we mean where the condition where governments initiate force, destroying the right to freely consent. So always remember, if we want to live in a civilized society in which the initiation of force is banned in all human relationships. Then at the bottom of the equation somewhere, and this is the irony of it all, is that you'll ultimately have to depend on force itself. So, um, you know, lest we forget, um, the whole point of force is that um, we need force. We can't just ban it. You can't just say you can make it go away or it should be banned or the police shouldn't be able to use it. That's contrary to the whole point of justice and law and order and all the rest of it. Um, any further comments on that, Robert? No, I think uh, you pretty much said it, Bob. I agree with you, and um, we're going to go to a break in a minute, yeah. and when we come back, we have a caller on the line, and I hope it can hold through the break, and we'll be talking about force and violence when we're back. Okay. This country ruled the British Empire and the British Empire ruled the world. And it was a very, very different place. I mean, we, 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 we were the best country in the world, the best everything in the world. We were all very proud of ourselves. And as a young man, 
it was my young, my duty and the duty of every young man to go and defend it against all invaders and to give, if necessary, our lives to do it. Thousands of young Britons were eager to volunteer. When the call came to serve your country, the chance of honour and adventure stirred a young Robbie Burns. Everywhere you went in Glasgow, the great big posters up of Kitchen of his finger pointing at you. No matter where you were, this finger seemed to be pointing at you. Your king and country need you. I could hear the piper and the left, right, left, right. I could see probably two or three hundred men, some with bowler hats and some with what we call skips, that is, flat caps. And uh, the pipes always seemed to do something to rouse my enthusiasm. I thought to myself, well, I want to do something like this. I never thought of being killed. Never thought of that. And I thought it'd be good fun killing somebody. my best officer and my friend. I'm glad he has such a friend. It hasn't been easy on Spark, neither human nor Vulcan. At home, nowhere, except Starfleet. I take it that Spark disagreed with his father on a choice of career. So my husband has nothing against Starfleet, but Vulcans believe that peace should not depend on force. Starfleet force is used only as a last resort. We're an instrument of civilization. And it's a better opportunity for a scientist to study the universe than he could get at the Vulcan Science Academy. HRW 94.9 FM. And on the line we have caller Scott. Hi, Scott. What's up? Hi. I just wanted to make a, a couple of points, if I may. First, on um, the notion of, of the whole, like, 1% against the 99%. Um, it, it seems that a lot of the, quote, 99% are complaining about the wealthy in the 1%. And disregarding any illegal activity, um, it, it might be unfortunate or, you know, too bad that 1%, if that's even a correct number, has a, a lot more wealth than the rest of us. As long as they didn't do something illegal to obtain that money, it is their God-given right in a capitalist society to have that wealth. And it's no one's business to tell them what to do with their wealth. They can persuade them, and some of them might be persuaded to, you know, share the wealth. But it is their right to make as much money as they want, to do with it what they want, as long as they pay taxes. And my last point is about um, police um, resistance and the whole notion of anarchy, that everybody thinks it'll be fine and dandy if there's no government and, and no police, but human nature is human nature. What happens when we live in a society like that and say someone wants your property? It sure would be nice if there was, uh, I don't know, a force that could protect us from someone trying to steal our stuff. Um, you know, something that could be 
put together with all of our money pooled together, and, and they can protect us uh, equally. It, it would sure be nice if there was something like that. There's, there's no sense in trying to have no police and no government because what happens when someone comes after you and your family, it, it's going to be nice to have someone there to protect you. Well said, Scott, and I agree with you completely, and thanks for your call. As a matter of fact, I'm going to tackle the, uh, the, uh, the bit about the envy that the 99% have for the so-called 1% later on in the show. Just one thing I wanted to address. You know, mm-hmm. Scott used that phrase again, God-given right. You've got to be careful with that. The same people who think that the 1% don't have rights to their money also think that's a God-given issue because it's just, and it's the social justice that drives it, you see. Right. So the reason that they have a right to their money and their wealth is because of reality and reason, because they earned it. Nobody else took any part. And you're correct, to the, to the extent that they didn't use force or, you know, criminal activity. Exactly. That's obvious. Yeah. Okay, sorry, Robert, carry on. <laughs> so just a reminder out there, you can call us at uh, 519-661-3600 to uh, join the conversation. You can also check us out online at justrightmedia.org where we've been working on our webpage and it's now a a site where you can actually leave your comments on the page and we'd love to hear from you. So just to return to the the notion of force and just how much it permeates our life, I think it's really surprising if you sit down and think about it. I picked up the National Post, Bob, the other day Mm -hmm. and uh, went through it, picked up a random post because I have a whole stack of them next to my desk looking for any article which did not involve the government, the police, war, or acts of violence. So finally, on page A10, there was a small story of a man walking across the country using the Trans-Canada Trail. No force involved, no nothing. It was just great to see, finally, after ten pages or nine pages of nothing but force and violence... an interesting observation, Robert. ...that we finally get a story about just a guy doing something very positive, and I loved it. So then... On page A12 is when the next issue uh, or item occurred, a paragraph about a plane crash in Russia. Not forced per se, but maybe the shoddy treatment that the... (laughs) Well, they were forced to land. (laughs) Believe it or not, I found that in one of the definitions, dictionary definitions of force. There's many definitions to it. That's a whole other show we could be I think we're more or less talking about a different kind of force (laughs) here, too. We're not talking about magnetic force, either. So by and large, I'd estimate that roughly 95% of the paper contains stories involving force, either criminal acts or acts of government, which has, by the way, as Bob said, a legal monopoly on the use of force. And I wouldn't take that away from them. As, as our caller Scott says, you need that. Any history book is essentially a history of force, violence, war, and acts of government. Today, or sorry, tomorrow is Remembrance Day, and it's a memorial to the most massive use of force in recent history. And the human race is at the same time repulsed by the initiation of violent force on the innocent, happy when it sees criminals receiving justice in the courts, and entertained with movies and video games depicting simulated violence. So force is really a multifaceted thing. Even the issue comes up in sports all the time, too. You know something? I was going to go through the sports pages Mm -hmm. as well. I didn't really have time to do it, but um, most of the sports pages I see have to deal with things like uh, drug taking or uh, sexual assaults or the government restrictions. And it's, Mm -hmm. it's, it too, force permeates the sports pages as well. It's not just simply scores. Force is often met with force. Uh, for example, as you pointed out, Bobby Occupy movement uses force and violence as it trespasses, litters, obstructs, and pollutes our parks and streets. 
While calling it peaceful. While calling it peaceful, (laughs) of course. And the police met such aggression with physical force, enforcing the force of law. We have spent on this show a considerable amount of time debating when force is proper or moral and when it is improper or immoral. And I think that most of our show, usually, we have a clear understanding of immoral force. The person who hits first is usually in the wrong, but not in all cases. Consider a situation where somebody who has a gun in his hand says that he's going to kill you, and is quite earnest about it, and you know it. Now, in such a case, you shouldn't hesitate to shoot first. You are protecting your life against the clear and present danger of imminent deadly force. Now, take that principle and apply it to the current situation that Israel It's is also facing. the practice the police use. They shoot first when they see well, somebody course. pointing at them. They yeah. shoot first sometimes when nobody's pointing <laughs> at them. Now, well. take that principle and apply it to uh, Israel mm-hmm. when it regards to, to Iran. Now, Iran is a nation whose leaders do not recognize the state of Israel and has called for its complete and utter annihilation. It's on the brink of developing nuclear weapons to do just that. Are the leaders of Israel morally justified to carry out a first strike against Iran? Of course they are. The only question for them remains is the aftermath of such an action. Will it survive it? Will it escalate into a crisis that it won't be able to survive? Will it have the support of the rest of the civilized world? Blatant acts of force and violence are usually the easiest to determine the aggressor from the victim. Sometimes. Japan invades Pearl Harbor. The U.S. retaliates. Japan is the aggressor. The U.S. is the victim. The moral authority lies with the U.S. And then you get into the historical problem is yeah. how far back do you go? Who, 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 who punched first, so to speak? You yeah. know? And, and you can go back eternally, I guess, as long as history books are kept. And like you say, history books are a record of the use of force. There. Mm-hmm. there. Now, what about the more subtle forms of force in society? When we receive our paychecks, for example, we see a substantial amount taken from us in the form of various taxes. In order to get it back, some of these taxes, we have to keep track of all our activities. The government deems eligible to claim a return of some of the taxes. And if you're self-employed rather than expecting a tax refund, you usually are forced to calculate and pay taxes by the end of April the following year or face a fine. If you refuse to face the fine, then you could end up in a court of law. If you refuse the order of the court to pay, you could end up being arrested and imprisoned. If you resist the police officers who come to arrest you, you could be killed. So such subtle and implied threats of force and violence, we often turn a blind eye to. We usually try to rationalize such force by recognizing, rightly or wrongly, that the government has to fund itself somehow, so it's best just to pay and move on. A few of us like to dwell on the ubiquitous nature of the force of the government in our lives. Much like the school child victimized by the bully who demands his lunch money, he pays up rather than face the more dreadful consequence of being of a beating. You know, in a more perfect world, the government would not be the schoolyard bully that it is and would not demand half of what we earn to redistribute it to its favorite interests. But we don't live in such a world. Now, turning back to the same newspaper, I read the following headlines. Quebec's new secular norm fines for worship. It's a story about a woman using uh, was issued t- a ticket for holding a prayer meeting in a public building, contrary to her contract, by the way. Um, another headline: Veteran's widow risks being arrested for wearing late husband's medals, which was an activity perfectly legal in other countries like Britain, for example. Uh, another one: Clement 
gives few straight answers, where we learn of, of the Canadian Treasury Board President Tony Clement trying to justify the expenditure of $50 million sprucing up his own riding in advance of the G8 summit. So go through the newspaper and try to think of the use of force, and you'll find that about 95% of the paper is devoted to force and violence, and I'd say that the majority of it is perpetrated by the government on its citizens. In most cases, the government is in the wrong. It's not morally justified in its actions. Unfortunately, we rarely see such justice being done in, in, in these cases. We usually see the politicians get away with their, what I call crimes, against our lives, liberty, and property. Why? Because we let them. We let them because we continue to try to rationalize the government's actions as being basically for the general welfare of all, when instead the opposite is almost always demonstrated to be the case. We let them because we ourselves aren't sure of what is morally or justifiable when it comes to the actions of even the purpose of government. We have, over several generations, inured ourselves to such immoral acts of force as the income tax, government cronyism and largesse, and the myriad social welfare programs that we have in this country. At the center of our apathy towards the improper use of force by the government lies our education systems. And we're going to take a little break now. And when we come back, I'm going to expand on that theme just a little bit more. Okay. Right after this. We have to take our possessions and flee. I'm very good at that. I was the men's freestyle fleeing champion two years in a row. And we have to remember to burn the food so the French don't get it. Although I know it's tough to light borscht. Boris. What? I have an idea. What? Let's assassinate Napoleon. Yeah. Interesting. It's getting a little late. You want to start knitting dinner? I'm serious. What do you mean you're serious? I mean, let's you and I kill Napoleon. Sonia, you've been drinking from the glass we use for the village, idiot? It's the answer to all our problems. No, it's not the answer. It's an answer, and it's the wrong answer. The correct answer is flee. F-L-E-A. Flee. No, no. French occupied Moscow. His headquarters are there. Sonia. Two innocent-looking types like us could work our way in to see him and then shoot him. Sonia, we'd never get near him. And if we did, we'd shoot and miss. He's a tough target. He's very small. Boris, it's our chance to perform a truly heroic act. Since when is murder a heroic act? Violence is justified in the service of mankind. Who said that? Attila the Hun. You're quoting a Hun to me? Don't, don't you know that murder carries with it a moral imperative that transcends any notion of inherent universal free will? Ah, oh, that is incredibly jejun. That's jejun? Jejun. You have the temerity to say that I'm talking to you out of jejunosity? I'm one of the most jejun people in all of the Russias. nation doesn't work. Violence leads to violence. He who lives by the sword dies by the sword. Well, I'm out of cliches now. What, are you suggesting passive resistance? No, I'm suggesting active fleeing. You can't run away all your life. I know, but, but murder, the most foul of all crimes, and not abstract murder, shooting a rifle at an unknown enemy on the battlefield, but standing in a closed room with a live human being and pulling the trigger face to face, and, and a 
famous human being, a successful one, one who earns more than I do. My God, you figure Napoleon, what, he's, he's got to be good for, for 10,000 francs a week. That's minimum, that's minimum, that's without tips or extras, nothing like that. And, and me, what am I? He's a, he's a great man. He's, he thinks like the Superman, and, and I'm just a, a worm, an insect, some kind, of, some kind of crawling, disgusting, creeping little vermin. You know, you can stop me. I will when I disagree. Oh, Sonia, who are we to kill somebody? Horace, for the first time in my life, I feel free, weightless. I, I have an exhilarating feeling of human freedom. It's called the guillotine. Oh, look, Horace. Look, the soft golden dusk is already transmogrifying itself into the blue star-sprinkled night. Very careful, because they then may be loaded. That's really funny, Bob. That's, uh, of course, Woody Allen and was it Lo- Diane Keaton, yeah. And th- they did so many skits like that and where they just got into the heavy philosophy and talking about the deep things of life in some historical setting. Very funny stuff, yeah. And often hitting a lot of points on the head. And just to go back to one of the clips we played earlier at the bottom of the hour, one of them was from um, a British production from Channel 5 called Lost Heroes of World War One, where we actually heard interviews with <coughs> World War One veterans and I found it very fascinating to get into the psyche of them saying that we never thought about ourselves being killed but we thought it would be great fun to kill somebody yeah it's, uh, you know it, I, I always used to question the whole sacrifice thing nobody goes to sacrifice themselves that's not the reason you actually leave you risk doing that you There's risk losing risk. your life but you're not doing it to purposely do it yeah. we covered that by the way yeah. in, uh, uh, a Remembrance Day show we did two years ago. Mm-hmm. We spent the whole day talking about Remembrance Day, so if you can find that one in our archives as well. Some fascinating uh, observations there, if I do say so myself. But back to um, what we were talking about earlier, the force. It's the force, and Luke. the education system, <laughs> and I'm, I'm going to blame a lot of it on the education system, because I think that the, at the center of our apathy towards the improper use of force is the education system. We send our kids to school which are run by unionized teachers who are selected by the teachers' colleges for their willingness to fall in line with the political ideology of the left. I have no doubt about that. That's an accurate statement, of, uh, if I do say so. Rare is the teacher who holds back a, a wretch when told to pl- he must play yet another Michael Moore documentary in his class. Hands up all those high school kids out there who may be listening <laughs> who has not seen the latest Michael Moore film film played in their classroom. I don't see a hand out there. (laughs) Rare is the teacher who holds back a wretch when um, he has to play those things or to teach uh, about how we are all our brother's keepers or how we should all learn to share our belongings with others or how universal health care, for example, is a defining characteristic of Canada or the CBC defines us. What rot. Rare is the teacher who does not agree with the left's ideology of altruism and anti-capitalism. Ask yourself if you could imagine a high school in this country which asked for essays about Ayn Rand's Atlas Shrugged rather than essays on Michael Moore's Capitalism, A Love Story, or Al Gore's An Inconvenient Truth. That'd be great if you you asked me. Can you imagine a school that for one week at least doesn't preach about how consumption and consumerism is destroying the planet and if everyone doesn't recycle, they're destroying the planet. I mean, it's just, you don't you won't find it out there. And Maybe in some private school, but then again, I, I, I don't hold my breath about that either. Now, the conflicting notions we have as adults about whether the government acts morally or immorally 
come from a conflict between our schooling and state-run schools and our common sense, between a society filled with government largesse and political corruption and our own natural desire to protect what we know to be ours. Whether it's in the schools or in the newspapers, we're surrounded with constant reminders of force, not so much the violent physical force of the soldier or the criminal, but the more subtle hidden forces of a corrupt world where people in power make it their life's ambitions to take from you as much as they can before you wake up and either revolt or, as in Atlas Shrugged, simply quit. Now, the most important part of protecting yourself against the capricious and destructive use of government force is arming yourself with the proper philosophy, which recognizes that your life is an end in itself and a means to not a, not a means to somebody else's ends. This show, just right, over the years has tried to persuade, not force, and educate, not intimidate, our listeners into understanding when to recognize the proper and improper use of force, mostly by government. And the solution, as Bob and I see it, is being armed with knowledge. It's been best expressed, if you ask me, in Ayn Rand's philosophy of objectivism. But there are many other people and organizations we rely on to strip away years of untruths and destructive ideas. But we always seem to come back to Rand for the most comprehensive study of what distinguishes right from wrong, moral from immoral. And at the heart of her ethics is the rejection of altruism. That is, the evil notion that you do not exist for your own sake, but for the sake of others. It is this abomination of the human spirit which has corrupted our politics for 2,000 years. Self-sacrifice and selflessness are the ideals for the altruist in complete contradiction to the nature of man. Now, Rand confronts altruism and asks one question. Why? Why, why should you sacrifice yourself, your desires and your wishes and labor and time and mind and money? And how come everybody race? else isn't being asked to sacrifice themselves to yeah. me? Doesn't this work both ways? Yeah, no, it doesn't. <laughs> isn't it like capitalism? Oh, no, it's not. It's a one-way street. <laughs> you know, there's yet to be given one good reason for it. In fact, nobody can answer that question without referring to some mystical, supernatural, or religious element. Or need. You can always say endless need. Endless need, need endless greed, if you well. ask me. Envy. What we accept, or when we accept, rather, that your own life is an end unto itself and that you should not sacrifice any part of your life to any other, that you start to better understand what should be the proper way to act towards your fellow man. Kindness and goodwill and compassion or even respect for others does not come out of guilt. It comes out of the knowledge that your own life is a value to you. And you want to share that value. Take away altruism and you're left with the philosophy of rational self-interest. This leads inextricably to a politics of capitalism, the only moral way to behave in society without force, fraud, or coercion, dealing honestly with others, trading value for value. When this is realized, the necessity to govern force in society leads one to understand in the absolute necessity for a government, but not a government which still operates on the principles of altruism, from each according to their ability and to each according to their need, but a government which stands back and allows everyone 
to pursue their own lives as they see fit and only stepping in to protect our lives, liberty, and property, to be a referee in society, not a player. Now, in a capitalist society, as we've defined on this show many times before, which, by the way, is also yet to be uh, proper to properly exist in the world, although I think well, that the closest probably would have been the United States during the uh, 19th century, wouldn't you say, Bob? In that era, we live in a more mixed economy again today as we drift leftward again. Yeah. And um, we, we could be drifting other directions now. Who knows? This, this All of this dilemma might actually wake a few people up, but I'm not holding so. my breath. I would hope so. But in a capitalist society, money becomes an indicator of an individual's value to others. One of the most evil, if not simply erroneous, statements made by anyone is that money is the root of all evil. When someone says this, they're probably, they probably mean that envy is the root of all evil. But even then, they fall short of the real root of evil, altruism. Money, if it is anything, is, not the, root of, is the root of all good. And if it's not the root of all good, at least it's a barometer, a barometer of good mm. and value. Today, we have the Occupy Wall Street protesters demonstrating against the so-called 1%, the rich. The vast majority of the rich have come by their wealth honestly, with fair dealing among others who valued it. Take the richest man among us, Bill Gates. His products have changed the face of the world for the better, and he's done it without the use of force or violence. Some might say that he has a monopoly on, op on an operating system, that we're forced to use his products because he is such a large market share. Utter bunk, of course. There are several products which others turn to if they don't like Bill Gates' products. And, um, I mean, <laughs> <laughs> but Bill Gates is a billionaire because we in the billions have bought his products. That is capitalism. That is not force. So, with that, just think about the people out there in the Occupy, um, Occupy Victoria Park and the Occupy Wall Street. Yeah, we'll be seeing them again. Yeah, people like uh, like a Bill Gates believe in a, uh, you know, these are the people we should be looking up to. The real promoters of violence and force, they're the 99% to be asked me. <laughs> You're right, Robert, and we've got to go. Hope you join us again next week when we'll continue our journey in the right direction. And until then... Be right, stay right, do right, act right, think right, and be right back here. We'll see you next week. Fade into color, color into black and white. Under the bedclothes, everything will be right. And the news hates video games. And they hate the video games. They blame everything on the video games. And it's true, it's true that there are plenty of video games that tiny children should not play. I am a grown-up lady, and I need to shoot best it occur fictionally so uh yeah and it's true also that the more horrifying the storyline behind a video game the more fun the video game i don't know why that's true i don't make the rules but that's the rule with video games if there were a video game where you stab babies in their sleep it would be horrible but i'd be in my room going hey, 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 hey.